You know, I was, I was, my voice was feeling kind of froggy this morning, but thanks to the choir and the hymns that we sang, it really kind of gave me a chance to clear my, clear my throat. And I'm thankful. Thank you, Matt, for leading us in worship this morning. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We are back this morning in our series in Nehemiah called Rising from the Ruins. And once again, if you are struggling to find it, my little trick, turn to the middle of the Bible. You'll probably land on the Psalms and then turn left three books and you'll be right there in Nehemiah. So Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, and there you'll be. Well, I'm glad to be back in Nehemiah after several weeks off for Easter and other things. I've been so excited to teach through Nehemiah chapter 8. It's one of my favorite books in, not only in Nehemiah, but in the whole Bible, really. It contains my life verse. And so I've just been really excited to dig into chapter 8 and unpack it together. The only problem is, We're not in chapter 8 this morning. We're in chapter 7. Chapter 7. Chapter 7, for the most part, is just a long list of names. Now, in the business world, chapter 7 means bankrupt. (laughs) Like, of no value. (laughs) Well, I don't think that's the case. I am trusting in what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, which is, All scripture is God-breathed. And, get this part, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the people of God may be built up. So, I'm kind of banking on that this morning. And with that as our confidence, uh, the message title is called Guarding the Work. And we are in Nehemiah chapter 7. And as I look through this text, there are really three parts that stand out to me. First of all is leadership in verses 1 through 3. And then secondly, citizenship in verses 4 through 69. And finally, stewardship in verses 70 through 73. So don't panic. That center section there is pretty much a long list of names which I do promise to butcher for you. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't speak it, but uh, I will do my best. So before we jump into it, though, I just want to do a quick recap because it has been several weeks. The nation of Israel was God's chosen nation. He raised them up from one faithful man, Abraham. They were to be, they were and still are the apple of his eye, his chosen people to display his glory to the world. But Israel rebelled against God in almost every way imaginable. They exchanged the worship of the one true God for the worship of idols. And they, they took on the, the detestable practices of the nations around them. And God warned them through the prophets for decades. If you don't stop doing this. I'm going to have to bring judgment. I'm going to have you taken away into captivity. You're going to be in Babylon for 70 years if you don't stop and repent. And despite all of the warnings, they all fell on deaf ears. And so true to his word, God did just that. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and conquered 
the Israelites. He drugged them away into captivity for 70 years. It was like a divine penalty box where God would put them and give them some time to think about what really matters. But also true to God's word, he brought them right back into the land after 70 years. So to get back to the land and the city of Jerusalem, God's holy city is ransacked. The walls are torn down. The gates are burned. It's in shambles. And they were back in the land for more than 50 years and nobody did anything to rebuild them. And so it was dangerous for the Israelites to live there. And it was a disgrace to the nation and to the Lord to have it in that kind of shape. And so God raised up Nehemiah. To lead the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And he placed it on his heart. And that's what we saw at the core of Nehemiah's crying out to God in chapter 1. A number of weeks ago. And so we see now the results of that work. And if you just back up a few verses to chapter 6 for a moment. Verse 15 and 16. It says, so the wall was completed on the 20th, on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. Isn't that cool? Despite all the opposition and 150 years of laying in shambles, The walls were rebuilt in 52 years. There was no, or 52 days. There was no way any man could do this. And the enemies of Israel saw, and they go, there's some greater power behind this. God is at work. And they were afraid because they had been opposing this God. Now, the walls are rebuilt, but they weren't rebuilt just for the sake of the walls. It wasn't just so people could say, wow, look at those incredible walls. Aren't they beautiful? No, the walls had a purpose. They had a purpose of protecting the people and giving them freedom. Freedom to worship and glorify God. That was the purpose of the walls. It was all about the worship of God. And you know, in a similar way, it's great to see the progress around our own facility. Over the last number of months, the education wing has been completely revamped. It's beautiful. And now the bathroom remodel is underway, praise God. And yesterday, it was just a joy to see so many people come out to work inside and outside the church building on the church work day. There, there was all kinds of work going on. There was weeding and planting and there was cleaning and there was painting. And it was just a beautiful thing. And you can see the results of it. Projects like these are great because they bring people together and they give a sense of camaraderie and purpose and a real sense of accomplishment when it's completed. You work toward a goal. But the goal is not just to have a beautiful building on the corner of Randall and Crane. There's a far greater purpose. It's to worship and glorify God. It's so that people can come into a comfortable, welcoming environment and have a life-changing encounter with the living God. It's so that our children can go into Sunday school and learn of God and grow in their faith and their love for Him. It's so that all of us together can come and worship God and hear from His Word and grow closer to Him. It's all about the worship of God. It's not about the building. 
So this is what is on the hearts of the people who've been leading this remodeling effort. And it's exactly what was on the heart of Nehemiah. So while the work in Jerusalem was finished on the outside, there was much work to do on the inside, beginning with the leadership. Nehemiah went to work on the leadership. Let's read through the first three verses together. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Well, the first thing I think that I see in here that's remarkable about Nehemiah is he didn't just say, there, I finished the walls, I'm done, I'm out of here. He didn't at all. He said, Lord, what would you have me do next? The outside work is finished. But what needs to be done on the inside? And he got to work. And it was necessary in order to guard the work that had already been done. Lest the enemy tear it down before it even accomplishes the purpose God has for it. So verse 1 says, After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set in place the doors, uh, the gatekeepers and the singers and Levites were appointed. So these gatekeepers were to protect the citizens, as we'll see in a minute, but the singers and the Levites were to facilitate the proper worship of God. That was the first thing he did. So he appoints them, and then he gets to work on these other forms of leadership. Now, Nehemiah, great leader, but he recognized he couldn't do it all himself. He was limited, and so his very next task is to raise up other leaders. And so he says in verse 2, I put in charge of Jerusalem, my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. Now, we were introduced to Hananiah back in chapter 1. That's Nehemiah's brother. He came 750 miles from Jerusalem to Persia to report to Nehemiah the condition of the walls. And that's when Nehemiah just wept when he heard the condition. That was, that was Hananiah. He was committed he cared deeply about the city and about the people and about the worship of God. And so he is appointed along with Hananiah. Now, notice the two most important qualifications for these men. They're right there in verse 2. They were men of integrity and they feared God. Here's the thing. Character is always the most important quality for any leader, especially a church leader. Remember what God said when selecting King David? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. God sees the inside, the heart, the character, the integrity. These are the most important qualifications. And that's what you see listed for church leaders as well. We heard them this morning. The qualifications for elders and deacons are almost identical, except that elders have to be able to teach. You don't see that on the deacon list of qualifications, but otherwise, they're almost all identical. 
They're to be a person of character, above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, of good reputation with outsiders, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. I ran out of fingers. Not a lover of money, not a recent convert, managing his family well. Notice it doesn't say a thing. It doesn't say a thing about being talented, strong, handsome, wealthy, well-spoken. God says, no, 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 don't look at any of that stuff. That's what the world looks at. That's what man looks at. God says, I look at the heart. I want to know the character of the man. That's the most important thing. And then he raises him up and he supplies all that is needed to do the job that he calls his leaders to. Every single man in this church should strive to be elder qualified. Every man and woman should strive to be deacon qualified. And it's not hierarchical roles. It's, it's different roles, practical and spiritual. We should all strive to be that. It's all about character. And so Hananiah and Hananiah were, first of all, men of integrity. And secondly, they feared God. Now, this doesn't mean they were afraid of God. Rather, they had this healthy respect for God and who he is. And I've given this uh, definition a number of times, but I think it's really important. The fear of God is this. It's a reverential awe. Reverential awe that produces humble submission to a loving God. That's what it means to fear God. Maybe it would help to give an illustration. I'm a, I'm, an, I'm a visual learner. I have a confession to make. I have a great fear of flying. I do. And you, you might say, Paul, that's crazy on its face. You're a pilot. <laughs> Mind me never to go flying with you. <laughs> I have a great fear of flying. Not that I'm afraid to get in the airplane, but I have a healthy respect for it. That causes me to treat it with great care and concern. Because I realize the incredible consequences. The danger that I would be to myself and to others if I didn't take that seriously. And so I'm going to do a thorough pre-flight inspection to the plane. I'm going to study the current weather and the forecast. I'm not going to take unnecessary risks. Because I have a fear of flying. The day I lose that fear, that's the day I become a dangerous pilot. And I think the very same thing is true when you think about the fear of God. We need to have a healthy respect for God that ensures we don't treat him and his word with carelessness or neglect. That we don't take it casually. But that we have great diligence. Lest we become a danger to ourselves and to the people around us. You stop fearing God, you're a danger. And not just you, to your family, to your co-workers, to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you probably notice here at Riverside, we have a kind of relaxed form of worship. We really don't care if someone comes in the door wearing a coat and tie or shorts and a t-shirt. We don't want that to be an obstacle to people gathering together to worship God. We're relaxed. We don't require that you whisper. In the sanctuary. We don't. It's okay to. We, we even, you can even laugh at appropriate times. Especially during the message. That's good. <laughs> Booing is not allowed. Strictly forbidden. <laughs> but while we're casual. And relaxed. 
we should never be irreverent. We should have a healthy respect for the word of God and for who God is. We can become a little too buddy-buddy feeling about Jesus. Like he's my little buddy and he comes along with me and does what I ask him to. You're talking about God Almighty. And yes, we have a personal relationship with him, but don't lose sight of who he is. We're to have a healthy fear of God, and that is a primary characteristic of these men and a requirement for leaders. So, what would be the alternative to fearing God? Fearing man. Fearing man and doing what's right in the eyes of man rather than God. Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles reply, we must obey God rather than men. And Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, a trap, something that trips you up, brings you down. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. So each one of us should consider, are there some things in my life where I'm fearing man over God? Where I'm more concerned about what that person thinks or says than what God thinks or says. And if there are, then we're not fearing God. So, the fear of God, the character, this made these men great candidates for leadership of God's people. And in verse 3, Nehemiah says, I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. A lot of the houses were built against the wall because that formed one big solid wall and they just add others around it. So they could guard that area closest to home. Now, the standard practice in the ancient Near East was to open the gates at sunrise and let the people go out. And you'll find later on, I think in chapter 10, that there's a formula there. 10% of the people would remain in Jerusalem and 90% would live out in the villages, but they would come into the city during the day. But Nehemiah says, don't open the gates at sunrise. Wait until the sun is hot, until it's mid-morning when everybody is up and active. So that our enemies can't catch us by surprise and attack us. And he said at the same time, shot him well before dark. He's being careful. He's guarding this work that had already been done. He's really guarding the people inside. Now, the Great Wall of China. You've seen it. This thing is a marvel of human engineering. It, it stands 1,500 miles long. 1,500 miles long. And it's 12 to 40 feet wide and 20 to 50 feet high. And it was all built by hand. Incredible. Now, the earliest construction began in 680 BC. That's actually 200 years before Nehemiah's rebuilding project. But it wasn't completed in 52 days. In fact, it took 2,300 years. It, it, it wasn't completed until 1680 AD. By one estimate, it required 57 billion man hours to construct the wall. That's almost unimaginable to me. And so they thought it's too tall to go over, too thick to go through, too long to go around. We're protected. But yet within 100 years of the wall being completed, China was invaded three times. How did they do it? 
They bribed the gatekeepers. They bribed the gatekeepers. See, China had the infrastructure. They had built the wall. They didn't care. They didn't put the emphasis on the integrity of the people. They had a people problem. And so, Nehemiah wants to put guards and leadership in place to make sure that he guarded the work that had already been done. In a similar way, we can do all the upgrades to the building. We can have the building look fantastic. But if we don't have the right leadership on the inside with the right doctrine and the right focus in leading, then we're in trouble because we won't have the right kind of growth in people. And it'll, it'll be of little use to us because it, we won't have the proper worship of God. Beautiful building without the proper worship of God. And so the enemy also wants to tear down the work that all of you have done here. Not just the physical work, but the spiritual work. And so we need to guard the work. Now the good news is that along with the work that's being done on the outside of this building... God is doing an amazing work on the inside. Even just in the area of leadership. Think about it. Over the past year, last fall, we saw Dan installed in our second pastor role. And what an incredible job Dan is doing. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Dan. I come to work every morning with a smile on my face. I love serving with Dan. God's doing a great work. We've seen... Two elders installed in the past few months. One of them just this morning. We've seen new deacons installed. And we're about to fill two more deacon roles. Men and women of integrity and character. Who fear God. Who are going to guard the work that has been done here. Who ensure that there's the proper worship on the inside. So this was the first priority. Putting these pieces in place. On the inside, the leaders. And then let's move on from leadership to citizenship in verses 4 through 69. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it on my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for the registration of families. I found the genealogical records of those who had been the first to return... And this is what I found written there. Now, there was little incentive for the people to move back to Jerusalem. It was dangerous. They had no protection, no borders, no walls. And so few came back. But now that the project is completed, Nehemiah wants to see the city fully populated with worshipers. Giving glory to God. That's his goal all along. And he's very practical. Remember, his, his leadership is a model. He's very practical and he's spiritual. But before he started rebuilding a wall, what did he do? He went out at night and he rode all around it and he surveyed the work that had to be done. Well, that's the same thing he's doing here. He's surveying the people. He's basically taking a census of who is there and comparing that to the registry that Ezra had created years earlier when the first Jews returned to the land. So that's what we're going to see here. And it says in verse 6, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. 
they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baak. Well, that's just to get warmed up because now we come to the big list of names. <laughs> Pray for me. And numbers too. It's not enough just to put all the names. We got all these numbers. I'm going to read them. I'm going to read them. Because God promises this is suitable for teaching. <laughs> right? I'll, it, it, just substitute it. Nehemiah 7 is God breathed. And suitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That we may all be built up. Right? So here we go. The list of the men of Israel. The descendants the descendants of Parosh, 2,172. A Shephatiah, 372. Of Ara, 652. A Pahath Moab, 2,818. Through the line of Yeshua and Joab. Of Elam, 1,254. Of Zetu, 845. Of Zakai, 760. Of Binuai, 648. Of Bebai, 628. Of Asgad, 2,322. Of Adonikam, 667. Of Bigvi, 267. Of Adin, 655. Of Atur, through Hezekiah, 98. Of Hashum, 328. Of Bezai, 324. Of Haref, 112. Of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netopath. 188, of Anothoth, 128, of Bez 42, of Kariah, Jerum, and Kephirah, and Biroth, 743, of Ramah and Geba, 621, of Mikmash, 122. That's a cool name, Mikmash. Yo, Mikmash. <laughs> Come here. Of Bethel and I, 123. Of the other Nemo, 52. Of the other Elam, 1,254. Of Harim, 320. Of Jericho, 345. Of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. Of Sana'a, 3,930. And now next we come to the list of priests. The priests, the descendants of Jedediah, through the family of Yeshua, 973, of Immer, 1,052, of Pashur, 1,247, of Harim, 1,017. Remember, this is suitable for teaching. Are you getting this? <laughs> I'm trusting. The Levites, the descendants of Yeshua, 74, through Kadmiel, through the line of Haraviah, the singers, the descendants of Asaph, 148, the gatekeepers, the descendants of Shalom, Atur, Talman, Akub, Hatira, and Shabai, 138. The temple servants, the descendants of Ziha, Hashupa, Tabaoth, Keros, Sia, Padon, Lebana, Hagabah, Shalamai, Hanan, Gidel, Gahar. I'm not speaking in tongues. <laughs> really not. Reia. Rezin, Nekoda, Gazam, Uza, Pasea, Basai, Menim, Nefusim, Bakbuk, Hakupfa, 
Harher, Bezluth, Mehida, Harsha, Barkos, Sisera, Tema, Nazia, and Haptipa. Again, these are some great baby names, y'all. <laughs> Write down your favorite, circle them. Mikmash. Uh, the descendants of the servants of Solomon, the descendants of Sotai, Sophereth, Perida, Jaala, Darkon, Gidel, Shephatiah, Hatil, Pokereth, Hazabaim, and Ammon. The temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon, 392. Now, why do you suppose God would... <laughs> yeah. Please, let's not have to do that again. <laughs> we're not going to do... These are in the book of Ezra too, so we're not going to do that one for a while. <laughs> why do you suppose God would list all of these names in here? And there's still a few more to come. What is his whole point? What do you suppose? Singers, gatekeepers, sons of servants. What could possibly be the reason for that? Well, for one, I think it says this. That God cares about individual people. He cares about individual people. Every single one of them. And he cares about you. Maybe you go through your day in the world out there and you're surrounded by people that just don't seem to care about you at all. Your employer, maybe your co-workers, maybe some family members, maybe just people you encounter in business. They just don't seem to care, but God cares for you. He sees you. He cares enough that he knows the very number of the hairs on your head. Imagine that. He cares enough that he went to the cross and took our sin upon himself, as we talked about last week. He took our sin that we might receive his righteousness. No matter who you are, where you are, what you've done, you matter to God. Individually, personally. Now imagine what it would be like to have your name in the Bible. Along with Micmash and some of those others. Not just the same name, but your name with your story in the Bible. Can you imagine how cool that'd be? What's too late? The Bible's done. God said, don't add anything to it. But you know what? Malachi 3.16 says that God has another book. He calls it a book of remembrance where he has recorded the names of those who fear him and are faithful to him. And it's written as an encouragement so that his people won't think that God has forgotten them. That's really cool. And then he has what's called a book of life spoken of often in Revelation and in other places. Now, maybe the book of remembrance is one and the same with the book of life. I don't know. But the book of life is filled with the names of individuals. Individuals. The names of every single person who is saved. Listen to what the apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. I ask you, loyal yoke feller. feller. <laughs> That's the text. <laughs> Fellow. Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Even better than having your name in the Bible is to have your name in the book of life. Every single person who's repented, confessed their sin, asked God to forgive them, placed their faith in the work he did on the cross, guess what? Their name is written individually in God's book of life. God knows what page it's on. 
If he knows the number of hairs on her head, he certainly knows you're on page 16,372 near the bottom. Your name's there. Brad, Tom, Monica, Lisa. It, the name's there. Is your name there? Are you trusting in God? Is your name written in his book of life? If it's not, the Bible's done, finished, but the book of life isn't closed yet. There's still time there. God loves us individually. He won't forget the work that has been done in his name. So we have all these names, but now we come to a problem. Verse 61, it says, The following came up from the towns of Tel-Melah, Tel-Hashah, Karub, Adon, and Emmer, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. The descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda. And from among the, oh, 642. And from among the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, Hakos, and Barzilla, a man who had married a daughter of Barzilla the, Gilead, the Gileadite, and was called by that name. That, that's a great name, Barzilla. I knew a couple guys in college that I think could have been named Barzilla. <laughs> Barzilla. Um, these searched for their family records, verse 64, but they could not find them and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So, what's with these family records? Well, remember that the nation of Israel was and is divided into 12 tribes. And they are the descendants of Jacob, his 12 sons. And God gave Jacob the new name Israel. And so they're called the 12 tribes of Israel. And I put these banners which depict each tribe. When they were in the wilderness, they had a banner that represented their tribe. I don't know if these are the actual banner, but they're, they have symbology that, that illustrates the, the attributes that God associated with each tribe. So you have these 12 tribes of Israel. You got the Benjamites, the Danites, the Levites, the Vegemites. No, no, no. Those are the lazy ones, the Vegemites. Now, there aren't any Vegemites. They're Australian. You got all these tribes, and yet one tribe was different. This tribe of Levi, the Levites, God selected them, not because they were greater, better. He selected them and gave them a different role. He said, you're going to be the priestly tribe. You're going to be the tribe that tends to all of the duties at the temple. And you're going to be the tribe that represents the people before God. And so not only did you have to be a Levite to be a priest, but you had to be a descendant of Moses' brother Aaron. It's all of the male descendants of Aaron who were qualified to be a priest in the temple. The priest would offer the sacrifices. The priest, again, would represent the people before God. So... All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Only the ones who are descended from Aaron would be the priests. And so it was important to know what tribe you were from for a couple of reasons. First of all, were you qualified to be a priest? And secondly, when God brought these tribes into the land, he gave, he allotted the land according to their tribe. He gave them all different areas. Except the Levites. The Levites didn't get a land allocation. 
Instead, their needs would be supplied by the other tribes. Now, they did get villages scattered throughout all of the other tribes' land where their people could live, but they had no land to farm as a source of income. And so, you needed to know what tribe you were part of because it was critical It proved one's land allotment, and it proved one's qualifications to be a priest. So, in verse 64, it says that there were some among the priests who couldn't find their family records. It says, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And again, this is a real problem, especially for Levites. Not only couldn't they serve, but they didn't have any land to go back to. And if they couldn't prove that they were a Levite, they weren't going to get their allocation, their, their supplies from the other tribes. They were kind of left out if they lost their records. So that's the problem that these, these men find themselves in. And it says in verse 65, the governor, therefore, that's Nehemiah, ordered them not to eat of any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering with the Urim and the Thummim. Now, the Urim and the Thummim, this is kind of a weird thing. It was like, they think it was, it's two stones. They think it was like a black one and a white one. And like the priests could use these stones to determine the will of God. It's kind of like we hear over and over in scripture, the casting of lots. It's, it's really like rolling the sanctified dice, flipping the sanctified coin. God, is this man a descendant of Levi or not? And you look at the Urim and the Thummim. Now, as weird as it sounds, that was a method God used to, to reveal his will to the people. We don't do that anymore. I left mine at home <laughs> this morning. <laughs> Why do we not need that? Because with the birth of the church in the book of Acts, God gave the Holy Spirit. We have a personal relationship with God. We have the Spirit of God. And we have the Word of God. And we have everything we need to know the will of God. The Urim and the Thummim are no longer necessary. It was temporary. So we have what we need to know the will of God. But back then, they couldn't just communicate directly with God like you can. They didn't have that privilege. So the priests would have to determine whether these people were eligible to serve because they'd lost their proof of citizenship in Israel and in their tribe. Now fast forward to today, again... Post-Acts, post-Pentecost and the birth of the church in the New Testament. What is your proof of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? What do you have? Do you have papers, a lineage? No, look at, I'll read you Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. It says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and now a condition Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is your proof of citizenship. Your proof of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. He's your paper, your seal, your guarantee for all those who are in Christ. If your name's not in a book of life, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't have your citizenship. See, it's not good enough to say, well, my parents are believers. Not going to do it. God has no grandkids. 
He only has kids. You're not going to get in on the coattails of your ancestors. It has to be you. You have to have the seal, the Holy Spirit. So, verse 66. This is just a summary now. No names. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants. And they also had 245 men and women singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Even the, the animals were accounted for here. So, we have the leadership, and we got the citizenship. And now there's one more piece in these last three verses, and it's the stewardship. The stewardship in verses 70 through 73. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand drachmas of gold, 50 bulls, and 530 garments for the priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 drachmas of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 drachmas of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 garments for the priests. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with, certain of the, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. Now, he says the governor first. That's Nehemiah. Nehemiah sets a strong example. He himself gives a thousand drachmas of gold. That's 19 pounds. I did the math. That's about $600,000 in our, in, our, in our current value. And along with that, he contributed 50 bulls and 530 garments for the priests. And then the heads of the families and the other people kicked in more. In total, it was almost 800 pounds of gold and 5,500 pounds of silver. The people gave generously in support of the work at the temple. Now, if you've been here for any time at all at Riverside, you know that we don't make a big deal out of giving. We don't pass a plate on Sunday morning. We don't do that because we don't want to make a display of our giving. And we don't want somebody to give reluctantly or out of compulsion. Scripture said, don't give reluctantly or out of compulsion. We don't want anybody to think, oh, that person's going to see I didn't give anything, so I better put something in there. That's giving for the wrong reason. We don't want that. So there's offering boxes in the back for our private giving to the Lord, not public giving. Now, I'm not afraid to talk about giving. I'm really not. I gave up a lucrative career to follow the Lord's call into ministry. And I don't say that to toot my own horn. I say that so that you can rest assured I am not in this for the money. <laughs> I'm not, okay? I'm not afraid to talk about giving. But I do want to communicate what scripture has to say. I, I really have no interest in standing up here and hammering people on the topic of money. My goal is to teach the word of God and have people fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. And when they do, they're going to care about the things that Jesus cares about. And I'll leave that in the hands of the Lord, but I want to teach the scripture faithfully. So, our approach to giving is this. We teach through the Bible. When the Bible talks about money, we talk about money. And when the Bible doesn't talk about money, we don't talk about money. 
See, I'm really convinced that it's not only the right message. I say this all the time. It's in the right proportion. It's in the right proportion. And the fact is, the Bible has a lot to say about giving. Not as much as some preachers <laughs> say about giving. But the Bible has a lot to say about giving. One half of Jesus' parables and one third of his teaching was related to money. Not because it means so much to him. It doesn't. He owns everything. He talks a lot about money because it means so much to you and to me. So he talks a lot about it. But the fact is how we handle our finances says something about our spiritual maturity. God says he loves a cheerful giver. Why? It's not because of the money to give. He loves a cheerful giver because it says they've come to a place of spirituality, spiritual maturity, where they're trusting in the provision of God and they're trusting in the promise of God and they're not clinging to earthly possessions. It's the maturity that God loves, not the gift. He's like, look, finally, this person has arrived. It says something about our heart. There was a man on vacation in Acapulco. And he was walking outside his resort when he heard the screams of a woman kneeling beside a child. And he understood just enough Spanish to realize that the boy was choking on a coin. And so he picked this little child up and he gave him a few firm shakes and out popped a, a, a quarter and landed on the ground. The mother, oh, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Oh, what? You, are you a doctor? You knew just how to get that money out of him. You must be a doctor. He said, no, ma'am. I work for the United States Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> <laughs> he knew just how to shake him down and get the money out. A lot of churches, governments are good at that. I just sent my check into the state and the feds on Monday. A lot of churches are good at shaking people down. And I think there's probably a number of people here who have a bad taste in their mouth because of the way some churches that they've known have handled money. Well, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be every time you turn around, we're talking about money and giving and we need this and we need that. And we're just, we're just not going to do that. But stewardship is important. And so we're going to continue to teach what the word of God says and, and make any financial needs known. And leave the rest in God's hands. That's our plan. In 2020 when we went into the whole COVID lockdown thing. We didn't know if we would come out the other side of that as a church. We didn't know if we would survive it financially or not. We just didn't know. We didn't even have a means of giving electronically back then. And so we didn't know. But going through COVID. Last year was the strongest financial year ever for Riverside. And you know what? That's a credit to God and his blessing and to your faithfulness. God is doing a work in the hearts of people. They care about the things God cares about. They care about the ministry. See, the ministry has to go on. The funds that were given to Nehemiah and his people were to fund the work of ministry through the temple. And it's the same here. So the people... We're generous. And, and you know what? Your faithfulness has allowed us not only to rebuild the wall, so to speak, to improve the facility, but to continue the work of ministry and to facilitate the worship of God, just like we're doing here this morning. That's what it's about. Well, 
we made it through chapter 7, not bankruptcy. <laughs> we made it through chapter 7 in the book. Thank, I don't think I'm going to have to live long enough to teach Nehemiah 7 again. <laughs> but it's not all bad. But we looked at leadership, citizenship, and stewardship. And rather than recapping that, I want to wrap it up in a little different way. I want to contrast it with something else in Scripture. See, in Jeremiah, you have this account of God building up the walls to protect the people and to promote worship. But if you go to another book, you go to the book of Joshua, you have the account of God tearing down the walls and judging the people, bringing destruction on the people. Think about that contrast for a moment. Two Old Testament books. In one case, God builds up and brings protection. And in another case, he tears down and brings destruction. Well, it's kind of similar to a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 7. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine, these words, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So I guess my question is this. Where is your house being built? Is it being built in Jerusalem? Or is it being built in Jericho? Is it being built on a rock? Is it being built on the sand? Now, I didn't ask, what do you do on Sunday mornings? Where do you go to church? Ask about your house. See, your house is symbolic of the center of your life. It's where your most closest important relationships are. It's the center of your career, your activities, you, all of that is centered on your home. And so, where is your house being built? And do these things in your house revolve around the work of God? And are they geared toward worship? See, your career is an act of worship when you hold it rightly. Your family, everything you do can be an act of worship. I like the saying, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's the truth of it. So as a church family, let's keep working hard. But with the primary goal being the worship of God in everything we do. And let's be careful to guard the work. Lest the enemy tear it down. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Riverside is your church, and you're building it, but yet we play a part. And so help us to be like Nehemiah, working hard so that you might be worshipped, God. We might bring you glory. Give us a vision for what you want to do, and then give us the wisdom and the resources to accomplish it. And help us to guard the work, God. Help us to maintain the right type of leaders. Elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, men and women who serve in different capacities. Help them to be men and women of character who fear you. God, help us to be good citizens and to serve one another. Help us to be good stewards supporting this work of ministry. And Lord, we ask this.
because we want to see your kingdom and your glory shine forth. And so we ask it in your son Jesus' name. Amen.